You are listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by Dr. Ed Stetzer, author, missiologist, and interim teaching pastor at Calvary. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here is today's message. Well, amen and amen. Um, Just uh, do me a favor and smile or leave your mask on, but smile unless you're in the witness protection program and then duck. Okay, good. So it's good to see you, good to be with you. It's been quite a few weeks in our nation, and yet the people of God have a place, have a purpose, and God has a plan in the midst of all of this. If you have your Bible, take it out and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're leaving our study, well, we're pausing momentarily our study in the book of Philippians, and we'll be back to it next week, but, but I wanted to talk a little bit about our role in the midst of a broken and divided time. Today's message is called Representing Jesus and His Kingdom, Representing Jesus and His Kingdom, and our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse uh, 16. Paul's writing here to the church at Corinth to give us a little bit of background, not too far from Philippi, but a church has become uh, somewhat corrupt, in some ways uh, complicit with the world around it. They were wrapped up in a lot of things that weren't God-honoring, and Paul had to write and rebuke them uh, with the authority and strength of his apostolic role, right? And it's evident in the language as we read it. Let me read the passage. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 will begin at verse 16, and I'll read to verse 21. It won't be on the screen. Matter of fact, let me mention the screen. Let me mention the technology. Let me mention the, uh, the music, the sound. Uh, this is always, I know you have the wonderful joy, and I know that in the world in which we live today, it's sometimes difficult to get out and come to church. And again, as you heard Pastor Loki say earlier, no one gets left behind. But we do want to encourage you as uh, that we are meeting here safely. We're following all mitigation protocols. And on February 14th, we're, we're planning, as always, we can't promise, but we're planning to be gathering gathered together. I want to invite you to come and to be a part of that. It is a beautiful thing to be together today. Would you agree with me, those of you here in person? Yeah, lots of folks excited about that. So um, when you are ready, no one gets left behind. When you're ready, we want you to join us, those of you who are worshiping at home, hopefully February 14th. But let me also mention that the amount of work that goes into this is a remarkable and a surprising amount of work. And the technological challenges we're here and about, they always are, where whenever we gather together and we have a short time to put things together. So would you join me in thanking our tech team, our worship team, all the folks who are a part of doing the hard work with that. So... When I say it's not on the screen, it's not on the screen because I didn't want it on the screen, not that they don't have it on the screen. I want you to just listen with your hearts. It says, from now on then, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. From now on then, um, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we regarded Christ once according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is our text. We're going to talk about representing Jesus and his kingdom. I want us to look at four things today. We'll walk through them one at a time. If you're a note taker, you can jot these all down as we go. Number one, we get a new perspective. What I want you to see today is we get a new life. It gives us a new way of looking at things, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. Number one, we get a new perspective. Again, let me read the text. From now on then, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. It says in some places that we no longer see people from a worldly point of view. We no longer see people from a worldly perspective. I think is how the NIV translates it. We regard no one according to the flesh, even though maybe we thought of Christ. We regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Scholars and commentators kind of take different approaches to what that means, but a lot of what it boils down to is we didn't know who Christ was. Now we know for sure who he is. Therefore. Now, don't want you to miss this, right? The word therefore, whenever we find it in the Bible, we want to ask the question, what's it there for? What's it doing? What's it connecting together? Here, it says therefore, okay? Well, the verses before actually tie into this as well, but therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. So there's new creation. It's connected to the new way of looking at things. From now on, regard, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, no one according to the flesh. It's connected to our new life. A new life is connected to this new look. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, some of us might recognize and remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If you're a Bible memorizer, and I encourage you to be, it's been a shaping reality of my Christian growth, is memorizing passages of Scripture. That one might be one that you remember so much, it might even be put on a refrigerator somewhere, right? Therefore, maybe made into a plaque. If anyone's in Christ, there's new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. But it starts here, but this is maybe one of the harder things, right? This is one of the harder things today, and maybe the message that the church needs to re-emphasize, to broadcast again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We see no one from a worldly point of view. Why? Because this new life has given us a new way of looking at things, new lenses through which we see the world. If anyone's in Christ, there is new creation. Now, the new birth, it's new life in Christ. It's not turning over a new leaf, right? It's not trying harder. It's not trying to get a little religion to make you a better person. It's about a new life, not a new leaf. It's a new creation personally, but also a new, a new community corporately. But this recreation of self gives us a hint of something more. Now, the verses before would give us a little more content and context, but for the sake of time, I just want to start here and say, from now on, we don't know anyone from a worldly point of view. Instead, we've got new life. The new life is connected to a new way of looking at things, new lenses through which we see the world. And this ought not surprise us. 1 Corinthians 7.31 says, For the world in its present form is passing away. And if you didn't know that, just pay attention to the last few weeks. There's always a sense, right, that the world in its present form is passing away, and yet God in Christ is causing to be born again men and women. And he's building a kingdom that's unlike the kingdoms of the world on their crumbled foundations and their uncertain futures. So how do you look differently, right? You got a new life, a new look, new lenses 
through which you see the world. Here's the challenge. Far too many people today, far too many Christians today, are being discipled by their cable news choices and spiritually shaped by their social media feed. But a new life in Christ gives you a new way of looking, new lenses through which to see the world. You may have noticed that I wear, I wear glasses. I bet I'm not the only person who wears glasses here. If you wear glasses, just raise your hand. Don't be afraid, okay? Four eyes. Did they call you that when you were a kid? Called me that when I was a kid. I actually, I, I remember when I came home, and I came home and came home from the eye doctor to our home in Levittown, and, and my mom said to me, she called me Eddie, and, and, and you may not, she called me Eddie, and she said, Eddie, um, you're going to be getting glasses. And I was just, no, what do you mean I'm going to get glasses? And, and, and she said, oh, but it'll be fine. People won't make fun of you. I said, mom, they're all going to make fun of me. And then she told me that I... I'd have to wear an eye patch with my glasses. And I said, Mom, for sure they're going to make fun of me. And she said, no, Eddie, they're going to just think you're a pirate. <laughs> I learned then that my mother could not always be trusted. <laughs> but I don't wear glasses for fashion. I wear glasses for seeing. Right? I need to see differently. And that's part of the reality. It's funny. Um, three years ago, my, my youngest daughter was... Um, Donna, my wife, came home with Caitlin and said, she said to me, Ed, listen, um, Caitlin's going to be getting glasses, and I don't want you to make a big deal about it. I'm implying somehow that I make a big deal about things sometimes in my life. I said, of course I won't make a big, big deal. She looks at me with that stern look, and, and it's like, so I go to her, and I say, and I'm playing it cool, I'm trying to be the cool dad, and I said, I said Caitlin, listen, I, I hear that you're going to have to, um, you're going to, no, I didn't say have to, you're going to get to wear glasses. And, and, you know, those are kind of cool today. That's, that's like no big deal. And she totally sees through my encouraging dad to the teenager act. At the time she's 13, she's not allowed to uh, roll her eyes at her parents, but she somehow communicated an eye roll with her words without actually moving her eyeballs. And she said, Dad, she said, I said, I said yes, Dad, listen, glasses are cool today. I said, no. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. People go to like the store and buy glasses without prescriptions so they can wear them to school because they're that cool. And I, and I said to her, I was so happy for her and so simultaneously bitter about my own childhood experience. Maybe you've walked that road. You say, I don't wear glasses for fashion. I wear glasses for seeing. Right now I see you, and if I go like this, you're not there anymore. <laughs> oh, welcome to Calvary. You're back. But one of the strange things about being a pastor is the things that people comment on in your life. Now, this week, um, this week I, I had to tell my church, I had an article came out in USA Today on, on a Sunday, and so I, I have to remind my church where I'm a teaching pastor. I say, listen, just so you know, um, I, my, my real job, I'm a public commentator. You're not going to agree with everything I say. Or the next morning I was in NPR's morning edition. You're not going to agree with everything that I answered there. Um, but when I come here, I teach and preach the word of God to you. And so, so I expect sometimes people say, well, I disagree with this or that, and you wrote outside. I hope that there's not things that I come and I'm opening the Bible that you might disagree with. If I'm being faithful to preaching the Word of God and you're tracking with me, I think we can agree together. That's what we want in church. But one of the things that is fascinating is the number of things that people send you 
who kind of maybe have an opinion or a correction or a suggestion. And I'm actually have uh, my favorite complaint email of all time actually came when I was at uh, the Moody Church. Some of you are familiar with the Moody Church and its historic connection to Calvary. So I was the interim teaching pastor there for a little less than four years, um, which is not our goal here, just so we're crystal clear. Um, I was the interim teaching pastor of Moody Church for longer than three of the pastors of Moody Church were the pastor of Moody Church. So that is not our goal here. Um, but one of the things is when you have like this church, historic church, uh, people come from around the world, people watch from around the world, thousands and thousands, this is before COVID, thousands and thousands of people watch online and they send in suggestions or corrections. And this is actually my favorite one. I think we can actually show it to you on the screen. Let's take a look. This is the actual complaint email that I received, right? I, I just took the screenshot, took off the, my name and the, let me just read it to you. You can feel the passion. I listened to your August 13th sermon at Moody Church Online. After listening to it once, I listened again, praise God, because I was awestruck. He loved the sermon with the number of times you adjusted your glasses while preaching. <laughs> so the second time I listened, I saw, this is actually the screenshot, unadjusted, un, you know, unadjusted unedited, I saw in the first 36 minutes of your sermon, you adjusted your glasses 74 times. And then you took them off, so I counted no further. You can feel the passion. He says this was, and it gets a calculator at this point, this was an average of once every 30 seconds. But you can feel his frustration. But keep in mind, this is an incomplete count because some of the time scripture or your sermon was on the screen and I could not see you. You can feel it. I tell you this in Christian love. Every complaint email I get from a Christian says that. Because I know you're interested in being aware of anything that may distract listeners from hearing what you are preaching and teaching. So I hope you accept this knowing you can hear the love here that I want your ministry to be as effective for Christ as possible. But I don't wear glasses for fashion. And I do adjust my glasses an inordinate and unnecessary amount of time. And yes, I just saw you turn to your friend and say, I'm gonna count how many times he touches his glasses before the end of the service. Can I tell you, nobody likes you when you do that. You don't want, somebody needs to tell you, don't do things like that. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss, right? If there's one thing that Christians need in 2020, you say, Ed, it's 2021. No, it's not. This is the 13th month of 2020. If there's one thing that Christians need in this longest year ever, it's to put on a new set of lenses, a new way of looking at the world. They got a new life in Christ. It's time to look at the world in a new way. Put on some lenses that are driven by the gospel, not by the way the world is shaping us, but by the way the gospel shapes who we are and how we look at the people around us. Number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Boy, pretty divided time, yeah. And it, it's because people are far more discipled by their cable news choices than by the gospel today. It impacts right into churches. You'd think we'd all see and say, okay, wait, we got a new life, we got a new way of looking, new set of lenses through which we see the world. How might we see what takes place here or what place, takes place there? We see it differently sometimes. 
But there are things we can see together. You might not agree with me on everything, but there are things you need to agree with me and I need to agree with you because we don't set our own way of looking at the world. We've got a new life, new lenses, a new way of looking, new lenses through which we see the world. Number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. It says this in verses 18 and 19. All this is from God. Now, again, I, I, I wish we had more time, but uh, our chairman of elders, Jim, is a harsh timekeeper, and so I have to keep kind of my time within a certain amount of time for preaching. You can talk to him afterwards if you're like, he's right there. Um, so, because there's so much more in this passage, but all this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. You know why we live differently? Because we have been reconciled to a holy, perfect God through the death of his perfect son. So he reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, right? Notice the, the, the handoff, if you will, maybe the baton pass here, right? We've been reconciled to become agents of reconciliation. Reconciled, it says, he, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You might think, um, when you're reading this passage, you might think, is that repeating itself? Does that say the same thing twice? And, and actually it is. It's a, New Testament writers sometimes employ something called a parallelism to sort of emphasize something. So hopefully by now you see the two references of reconciling and becoming agents of reconciliation. Reconciled given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciled giving the message of reconciliation. So for us, we are the ones who bear this message of reconciliation in a world that's so divided. Now certainly when we look to the totality of scripture, part of that reconciliation can be to be peacemakers. Predominantly in this passage, it's actually about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what an important time, what an important moment to double down on the most pressing message that the world needs to know. Now, why does that matter? Because here's the thing, right? We look sometimes, and I, 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 I like to read the history. I've read the history of Calvary and its multiple locations and its multiple name. And, you know, some of you know we've been in this building before, not, not that long ago. And, um, and the history, you know, in and around this building and Calvary's history and all. Because when it comes to Calvary, we're recipients of a gospel that somebody told us. Somebody told you, and somebody told you, and somebody told you, and that person was told by somebody, and somebody told that person, and it goes all the way back until Jesus told the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We literally are on a great commission highway that goes back 2,000 years where somebody told somebody, some told somebody told you. And here, the reminder is, is that now it's our role to tell somebody else. It says, we have been reconciled and given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled, given the message of reconciliation. It was, it was interesting because this week I was, um, had lunch with Stefan Chevijan, not necessarily someone you would know, but that's Billy Graham's uh, oldest grandson. And we talked a little bit about your church Matter of fact, you probably know that Billy Graham said the man who had the most impact on my ministry was Stephen Olford, your former pastor of years ago. Billy Graham preached here at the family that is Calvary. And it's interesting because the last time I had a meal with Stefan Chevijan was uh, the morning that Billy Graham died. But let me tell you a little bit before that. We had actually, Donna and I, Donna um, normally 
we'd like to travel together. It's been difficult sometimes right now, as you can imagine. I hope to bring her uh, on February 14th, uh, largely because that's Valentine's Day weekend and I'd like to survive it. Uh, and and um, so leaving her home on Valentine's Day weekend doesn't end well for me. Um, but also so you can meet her and we can visit together. So, but anyway, so we, we were going down to this meeting, eventually we being with Stefan, and so we called Uber, right? We got on our, we got on our phone and called our uh, Uber driver, and the Uber driver showed up and, to pick us up and started our drive. Now, those of you who don't know, I live in Chicagoland, and so we started the drive to O'Hare International Airport with our Uber driver. We got in the car, I got in one side, Donna got in the other, and uh, Jane was the Uber driver's name. Super nice woman. See, she started immediately with conversation with us. But I know, we all have to be nice to each other when it comes to these new apps because we all get to rate one another. I'm gonna rate her, she's gonna rate me. So I'm gonna be nice back because I want a five. My Uber rating currently is 4.98 and I am haunted at night to know who did not rate me a five because somebody gave me a four and I don't know who that was. So we get in the car, we start talking, and she says, among other things, welcome, what's your name? I'm Ed, this is Donna. She said, okay, we're going to head on the airport. There's a little a basket in the middle. First of all, I got power if you need it for your phone. There's bottles of water in the seat behind your chair, and there's a little basket in the middle. Take anything you want from the basket in the middle. And we looked down, and in the basket in the middle was some candies and a strategically placed pocket New Testament. So we knew something was afoot. So I turned to Donna, we've been married over 30 years, so we no longer actually need words to communicate entire paragraphs. So I looked to her and I thought over to her, let's have a little fun with this. Let's not tell her who we are. Let's kind of run with this for a little while. We'll be honest, but we'll have a little bit of fun. And she looked at me with a look that's saying, don't go too far. She's the godly one in the marriage. And so she started and Jane said to us, well, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from New York. And Donna said, I'm from Canada. And we shared a little bit of our background. And, and she asked sometimes questions that were, were questions I needed to quickly redirect. She asked, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a teacher. I didn't want to say what I did. And I taught, I taught, you know, I was a professor or whatever it may be. I said, I'm a teacher. What do you do? Quickly change. Do you work other than Uber? She says, yes, I'm a realtor. And then we talked about our family. And then at one point, by now we've got this rapport. We're 15 minutes into our drive on the 30 minutes to drive to O'Hare and then she says to us so do you guys have any like religious background or spiritual background now if you know anything about evangelism she's led us to a point in a conversation where she's going to share the gospel with us I literally teach this regularly to people and so here she is she says do you have any religious or spiritual background and Donna looks at me and says you can't keep doing this you have to tell her I mean she doesn't say that she telepathically communicates that and so I say, actually, actually, Jane, yes, yes, we do. Jane, I have to, I'm actually, I'm a professor of evangelism, and you are doing so great right now. <laughs> and she was, she was staring at the guy. We laughed. I actually said to her, Jane, can I just record a quick interview with you? And if you Google right now, not right now, after service, if you Google Jane the Uber driver, that article ended up getting picked up all different kinds of places. But I want to tell you why. You see, Jane was convinced that part of her role was to share the gospel. She said, well, I, I actually have some free time, so I drive Uber so I can meet people and so I can tell them about the Lord, so I can share the gospel with them. And I said, praise God. You see, she understands that she is on this great commission highway where somebody told somebody, where told somebody, and she wanted to tell us. So we flew down to the meeting and that next morning, 
we got word that Billy Graham died the morning after being with Jane, the Uber driver. And I was with Stefan, and we talked about the legacy of Mr. Graham. We had to change our plans because I had to write some articles for CNN and USA Today, stuff like that, I, since I work at the Billy, College Billy Graham Center. But um, fast forward, it was a week or so, we were down in Charlotte for the funeral. They, they, they built the tent, the tent from the great Los Angeles crusade where, uh, where so many people, you, I mean, there's just so much story to tell. But they recreated the tent and we walked into the tent and had the privilege of being there. I actually was the, uh, one of the radio broadcasters of the funeral. And so I was on the radio with Jim and kind of explained to the world what's going on. Uh, one cable network streamed the whole thing. The gospel was shared, it was a beautiful thing. But right before the funeral service, uh, Lori Goodstein from the New York Times, she was the religion reporter now, I think she's doing the arts for the Times. She came up to me and um, she said, Ed, let's, you know, let's talk a little bit, give a little framing of Mr. Graham's life and history. And, and we asked a few questions and I, I've built a relationship some with the reporters um, in New York so that they might have a, hopefully a voice that can help ex explain a little bit of the context of evangelicalism. So I answered a couple of questions. Then she asked me the question that I was kind of ready for. She said, so who's the next Billy Graham? And I don't know anybody who claims that. Nobody in the family says they're the next Billy Graham. Nobody, nobody should. He was a unique person who will never be replicated. God used him in ways that are unimaginable, but also unique to who he was. But I was ready. She said, so who's the next Billy Graham? And I was ready. I simply said, it's Jane the Uber driver. And she looked at me with this puzzled face. We're friends. She looked at me with this puzzled face and said, what? And I, and I explained the story and she smiled and I smiled and, and she said to me, that's a great story, but it's not making the New York Times. <laughs> I was okay with that. Because that's not why Jane did it. But here's the reality that Jane knows. And in the world that's as divided and broken as this world is today, we need to remember that we are on a Great Commission highway. Somebody told somebody, told somebody, we've been reconciled. They've been reconciled, told us about reconciliation. They've been reconciled, told us we were reconciled. We tell others about reconciliation. And what I want to say to you in the midst of the brokenness, don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on God's Great Commission highway. We've got to recognize that right now, the world is fraying apart. Sure, here in our country, we were all stunned by those images on the news, and we were all shocked that sometimes they were connected to the name of him who is above all names, the name of him who saved us and changed us and made us new in Christ. So how might we respond? Well, there's many ways we can respond. But one way we can do so is to, is to look differently at our neighbors, is to show and share the love of Jesus, get a new perspective, we've got a new life. We've got a new way of looking, new gospel lenses through which we see the world. We get a new perspective, number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. It says in verse 20, therefore, what's it therefore? It's tying all this together. It's a very tightly woven passage. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, let me say that um, this is actually not referring to you. Paul's actually referring to himself and the band of fellow missionaries that he's with, and he's defending his apostleship in the, this part of 2 Corinthians. For 2,000 years, Christians have taken this verse, and I think rightly applied it to themselves, though, because we are indeed ambassadors for Christ. 
right? We've been made citizens. In Colossians, Paul writes, we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So whether you live in Brooklyn or whether you live in Hoboken, whether you live on the Upper West Side or you want to live downtown, wherever you live, your home is an embassy of the kingdom of God and you're an ambassador representing Jesus and his kingdom. And right now the world needs to hear that Jesus is still king. God is still on his throne and men and women who trust in him will find peace that passes all understanding. Number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. The kingdom actually arrived when Jesus, the king, shows up. The kingdom has come because Jesus has come. It doesn't fully come until Jesus comes back. So in between the first coming of Jesus and the second bodily return of Jesus, we represent him. And the word ambassador describes that word well. Um, the word ambassador is only used twice in our English Bible. Original Greek word only used twice in the New Testament. Once here. And it might be worth reminding us that the word ambassador is actually not a comfortable, cushy job as we might think of it today. You might go over and think about Turtle Bay. You might think about how those ambassadors sort of roll up in those cars and, you know, don't have to follow all the traffic rules sometimes and kind of live in a nice neighbor and say, that's an ambassador. That's not what an ambassador was like. 2,000 years ago, it takes certain irony here too. 2,000 years ago, Rome, the great empire, didn't send out ambassadors. Rome sent out um, conquering armies and governors. And nations near the edge of Rome would send ambassadors to Rome saying, hey, listen, can we make a deal? We could become a vassal state, a, you know, a quiet submitted state on your border that won't cause any trouble. Or maybe we could talk about how our conquest might go better for the leaders that are there. So Rome, the great power of the world, received ambassadors. Matter of fact, the Roman Empire bragged that he received ambassadors from as far away as India. Yet here, the God of all the universe has created for us a role. And he's transferred us into his kingdom, made our homes, our workplaces, and Calvary an embassy of the kingdom of God. Some of you are here from just so many wonderful nations around the world, and you know if you're from Africa that there's a disproportionate number of churches named an embassy. And I love that, because I think they're getting it right. It's an embassy of the kingdom of God. So Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we're going to work towards righteousness in a divided and sometimes unjust society. The only other time where Paul refers, or anybody in the Bible uses the word ambassador here, is actually in Ephesians chapter 6. It says, pray also for me, this is Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, that my message may be, that the message may be given to me, I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains pray that I might be bold enough in him to speak as I should. Number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. Number four, and finally, because of the cross. It says this in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A lot of pronouns in that sentence. For our sake, obviously that's us, followers of Jesus. He is God the Father, made him, that's Jesus the Christ, to be sin. God made Jesus to be sin. 
the one who knew no sin. That sounds like a strange phrase. We're going to unpack it so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We're gathered here in our current state. We're playing um, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? We're saying where in the world is Calvary Baptist this month? That's our, our current status. We might be at the Society for Ethical Culture. Maybe we'll be at the Ziegfeld. Maybe we're going to be over at Hunter College. Maybe we're going to be over at Alphonsus House. I don't know. <laughs> but here we meet in the Society for Ethical Culture. When you came in, you saw a sign painted on the side that said, no, not, not creed, but deed. A society founded by the son of a rabbi that wanted to kind of take out of ethics the idea of these superstitious religion elements and gather together. They, had Sunday, they would have Sunday services and they would call them non-theistic Sunday services. And they wanted to and want to help people to make good ethical choices. And we do need to find places and spaces where people can make good ethical choices choices. Um, there are actually things in this room that are, that are part of it. You'll notice the stage is intentionally built lower, and they explained that we wanted the stage to be lower so that no uh, religious leader would be higher than other people. It's just high enough that you can see one another. Uh, there's different things you can see around the room. I could go through and explain some of the carvings and the statues, and they, they maintain a message that is we need to be an ethical, right-thinking people. And on much, we agree. We believe that right now, one of the challenges in our Christian world is that sometimes Christians who have been, again, discipled by their cable news choices and spiritually shaped by their social media feed are the very ones who need to hear the message, no, this is not the way of Jesus. And yet the way of Jesus is described here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I want to be careful here because the reality is, is that our message today is not simply be ethical and be good. Though we believe that the Christian life would lead us to be people who do good and live ethical lives, we share that concern. But the reality is the kingdom of God is not just doing good. It's not. It, 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 here, what we find is a sudden turn in the verse. It's a strange turn in the verse, actually. Because so far, it's been very tightly woven. Two therefores, a couple of uh, repeats and a parallelism. Uh, and clearly, it's about how we see others. We've got a new life, a new way of looking, new lenses through which we see the world. We're, we're on this mission of reconciliation. Don't let our lives be a cul-de-sac on the Great Commission Highway. We've been reconciled to reconcile others. We're, we're called, like Paul and his missionary friends, to represent Jesus and his kingdom as an ambassador. But then it just seems to be the sudden change, which actually then becomes an incredibly important verse in almost every systematic theology book written today. Let me read it again. For our sake, for you, for me, God made Jesus to be sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't want you to miss this, that on the cross, Jesus died a sinner's death. He was made sin. He wasn't a sinner, but he was made sin. He died a sinner's death in your place and mine. I cannot remove the supernatural elements of that reality that I am a new creation. I am a new created being. I have been what Jesus called born again. And let me just say to everyone who's watching, 
watching and wondering, you too are called to respond by grace and through faith and indeed be supernaturally born again because Jesus substituted himself for you on the cross. He was, our sin was taken on Jesus and he took upon himself the wrath, the penalty, the punishment for sin. And in doing so, he gives me forgiveness and new life and a right relationship and shapes me to be the kind of person that God calls me to be. God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin so that believers could be seen by God as having lived Jesus' perfect life. You say, what does that have to do with the rest of the passage? And it does have some questions, right? Because all of our sin and our guilt was imputed to him. Imputed is a term we use in theology. It's actually a term that comes from banking. It's like being, it's like deposited. A deposit was made, and that deposit was made in Christ. My sin and your sin was made in Christ. But then a deposit was made in me at my new life in Christ, and in you at your new life in Christ. And what's been deposited in you is the righteousness of God. So now when God looks at you, he doesn't see all the sin and the stupid you've done. He sees Jesus' righteousness. And that's a great truth. We could do whole, whole books have been written on this truth of imputation. Whole sermons have been preached on this because all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord laid the iniquity of us all on him. Now, now we can preach whole sermons and whole books be written on it, but this is the end of a passage about how we relate to a world. And our world is divided and broken and angry. And it needs God's people to speak truth needs God speak to speak truth, to speak prophetically and sometimes prophetically to the very people of God when they are misled or misinformed or misunderstand. And all those things are true. And then we're called to speak to the world around us that needs to hear the good news of the gospel. So why for the cross? Why does the last point of this because of the cross? Here's why. Because it's the motivation for everything else. If you want to live the reality that we get a new perspective, I got a new life, new lenses, new, a new way of looking, new lenses to look at the world, that's because of what Jesus has done on the cross. If you want to live on a mission of reconciliation, you're just telling the world what Jesus has done on the cross. If you represent Jesus as kingdom, you say, well, Ed, I got more to say. I got opinions on this and that, and if they're destroyed, Distracting you from the message of Jesus and the cross, put them aside. You're an ambassador sent on a mission because of the cross. So I'm a little riled up today, probably. Was David a lot of, he, was he a yeller? A little, uh, depends on how much Red Bull he had that day. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I had a lot of Red Bull this morning, to be fair. I had a lot of Red Bull all week. Because sisters and brothers, there's a thin veneer of civilization. And a lot of people saw some of that unravel this week. And I want to tell you, telling people to be good is not enough. Mark Twain once wrote, Samuel Clemens wrote, that churches where good people stand in front of good people and tell them to be good people. And I want to tell you, that's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for your sin and in your place, received by grace and through faith the good news of that gospel. God raised him from the dead in the third day. He'll give you a new life, and you're then going to be the different kind of person that engages this world. So that's what I wanted to encourage you in today. And as we move into a time of the Lord's Supper, I want us to partake the Lord's Supper with the sobriety and the seriousness of this moment, that what the world needs now is God's people on mission ambassadors for Jesus. Would you pray with me?
Father, we acknowledge today that by your grace and your goodness, you've redeemed us, called us by name, sent us on a mission for your name's sake. And Lord, our world's in trouble. Lord, our nation's in trouble. But this is not a surprise to you. 2021 is not a shock to you, but maybe it'll be a shock to your church. Remind us that we get a new perspective, sent on a mission of reconciliation, representing Jesus and his kingdom because of the cross. So Lord, as we move into this time, slow down our hearts, slow down my heart, even as with the enthusiasm that I brought the message today, maybe the enthusiasm or people may have received it, Lord. Slow down our hearts because ultimately we have nothing to give this world that doesn't begin and does not rest upon and is not secure upon the rock that is Jesus' death on the cross for our sin and in our place. So as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we partake in the reality that changed the world. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.